0: Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's virtual program at the Commonwealth Club of California. My name is Marshall Fitz. I am the Managing Director of Immigration at Emerson Collective, and I'm really excited to be moderating this program. And I'm excited because it means I get the chance to be in conversation with Sarah Coleman, uh, the author of an excellent new book titled the walls within the politics of immigration in modern america sarah's unique contribution with this book i, I think is reflected in the title uh, in that she recenters the prism of modern immigration politics away from disputes about the border uh, and onto domestic policies that limit or foreclose the rights of immigrants in the united states and then arguing for this conceptual pivot away from the border She dives into some fascinating case studies about access to schools, employer sanctions, welfare, and the role of local authorities in enforcing immigration policies. Drawing on new materials from past presidential administrations, immigration groups, and civil rights organizations, Sarah examines how attempts to limit immigrants' rights in the United States over the last half century have also circumscribed the rights of citizens. So we'll be discussing a lot in the next hour and I want to ask your questions as well. Uh, So if you're watching along with us, please put your questions in the text chat on YouTube and we'll be getting to them later in the program. So thank you, Sarah Coleman, for writing this book and for joining us today.
0: Thank you so much, Marshall, for having me. And thank you so much to the Commonwealth Club um, for organizing this. You know, a lot of the research I did for this book Um, came out of the Stanford Special Collections and the Hoover Institution. So it's nice to sort of bring this research back to the Bay Area community.
1: That's terrific. So let let me just start with a broad question. Uh, I'm curious why you decided uh, to take on this project, what intrigued you about this period of immigration policy and led you to write uh, what turns out to be an incredibly timely book.
0: Well, thank you. I think it's a great question. Um, You know, as you can see over the last month, but generally, right, much of the day-to-day focus of immigration reporting, right, focuses on the border, the southwest border and admissions and deportation policy. And while those are incredibly important policies, you know, they're only one part of the puzzle. And they're one part of a much larger puzzle where a lot of the anti-immigrant sentiment in the United States lies, right? And it's in access to education and access to employment, uh, civil liberties concerns, access to the social safety net. And I sort of wanted to write the story of how immigrants have seen a dramatic shift in their rights of, in those areas over the last 50 years, and what that means for those of us living in the United States, right? You know, there's 24 million people living in the United States today who are immigrants without citizenship status. It's about 10.5 um, million undocumented, about 14.5 million who either are legal permanent residents or temporary legal residents. And I sort of wanted to tell their part of the story as well.
1: Well, uh, um, you tell it beautifully um, and your book very deliberately begins in 1965. Um, What policy changes occurred in 1965 that kind of charted the country on a new trajectory and and really substantially um, altered the politics of immigration in America?
0: So 1965 is a very important year in American history for many reasons, and particularly in immigration history. Um, And it's because of the passage of something known as the Hart-Seller Act of 1965. Um, It's passed sort of in this moment of the civil rights movement and sort of under this ethos of fairness and equality. It's part of Lyndon Johnson's Great Society Right, so it's passed you know, one year after the Civil Rights Act, right, same year as the Voting Rights Act. And what it does is it gets rid of the race-based national quota system that was put into place in the 1920s, and it sets a uniform cap for all admissions um, across countries in sort of a more egalitarian way. Um, but more important to me is what you're going to see is following this is going to be a radical demographic shift in the United States. Um, And what happens coming out of sort of more than reshaping admissions policy is you see sort of this radical demographic shift. And as controlling the southern border sort of becomes more fraught for those who want to restrict immigration, it's at this moment that they start to sort of have these battles about what it means to be inside the United States, sort of, and um, sort of what, immigrants' rights are in the United States and sort of access to state and society. And I look in particular in four main areas, right? And education, labor, welfare, and civil liberties concerns and sort of these deep debates over what immigrants place is in the, in, in this moment after 1965.
1: Yeah. I think that the, those demographic shifts that you are talking about, um, and the origin of it are underappreciated, and I think how it's not only shaped our the politics of immigration and um, and and broader, uh, I think, uh, policy challenges and dynamics, but um, it's really fundamentally changed the the face of the country in a very short um, period of time, and I, I think it's an undercurrent of the. Uh, some of the cultural tensions that um, are, uh, I think, you know, less visible, but really kind of coursing below the surface of, of many of these debates. Um, over the last couple of months, uh, we've seen a, uh, a large number in the number of, uh, or a large increase, sorry, in the in the number of unaccompanied minors who've been arriving at the border, and um, that's obviously created a number of challenges uh, for the f- federal, state, and local authorities, including, um, I think one of the central questions about their educational instruction and that led to a a dust up uh, between Jen Psaki, the White House press secretary, and a Fox News reporter um, yesterday or the day before, and um, I want to dig into this a little bit because this is just the most recent iteration um, in a long debate over the education of undocumented students, and you study in this book um, one of the key moments in that history and I uncover some fascinating history that I had not known, which uh, I really appreciated uh, reading this. Um, but it was a history about when public schools in Texas in certain counties and uh, cities in Texas started charging undocumented families a fee for attending public school. And, um, so if you could just tell us a little bit about that fight. I mean, it's a fascinating story and, and, and how it ended up in the hands of the Supreme Court. Um, and then kind of we can have a back and forth about this. But what does it tell us more broadly about, you know, how is that a kind of a, one of the defining points of, um, about the trajectory in this fight for immigrant rights?
0: Right. The question of uh, education for undocumented children has really has this long legacy, as you mentioned. And so beginning in 1977, Um, beginning in sort of 1975, actually, the Texas state legislature starts to sort of think about this issue. But in 1977, a town in East Texas called Tyler, Texas, um, decides to start charging a fee of $1,000 per student um, to many families living in the region. Um, And four or five families uh, reach out to a local civil rights lawyer to, uh, to challenge the fee. It's about four thousand dollars in today's dollars, just to put this in perspective, per student. Right, so this is cost prohibitive for these families, um, and they reach out to two local civil rights lawyers who take their case. Um, what's interesting about the case, the Lopez de Alvarez uh, um, and um, Alvarez families take these cases just very locally. They're connected through a, a local Catholic outreach worker, um, to two civil rights workers who were actually had been placed there initially by the NAACP because of concerns around uh, voter redistricting and gerrymandering in the area. And the lawyers take the case and they sort of start to bring it. um, And what's interesting is sort of activists on both sides at the national level get involved. Right. So what you see is um, on the left, the case gathers a lot of attention from uh, MALDEF, the Mexican-American Legal Defense and Education Fund. And they had actually been looking for cases. They'd been you know, sort of known as forum shopping. They'd been looking for cases about this issue of access to education for undocumented students. Um, and one comes up in Texas, and they're very excited because the, uh, the district judge in that, in that area is known to be quite liberal. And they sort of view this case, um, looking very much to the Brown v. Board of Ed model, they view this case of unauthorized children as a very sort of a good vessel through which to challenge Um, restrictive uh, legislation based on citizenship status. And so they start to sort of become involved in the case. Um, What's really interesting to me is it also garners national attention from the right. Right. And so you see the emergence of several new uh, conservative public legal interest groups that had emerged sort of in the late 60s, early 70s, in response to the rights revolution of the 60s and the efforts of welfare reform um, in California. Um, Like the Mountain States Legal Foundation. And they sort of see the case as a manifestation of all that's gone wrong in the 60s. Right. It's a gross expansion of the rights revolution. They sort of view it as a tax burden placed sort of placed on the backs of the average American. And it's, it's also in their mind a sort of huge example of the overreaching federal leviathan. Right. That this is the federal government sort of taking this case too far. So the case winds its way through the Supreme, all the way through the Fifth Circuit up to the Supreme Court. Um, and it's very, uh, it's a it's a very interesting decision and it goes 5-4 um, on, in behalf of the students. It's a case called Plyler Vito, Vito. It's decided in 1982. And, you know, on its way to the Supreme Court, both the Carter and the Reagan administrations really struggle with what position to take in the case because they sort of understand that they're, this is sort of, might be a whole new area of rights that they're not sure how far they want to go on. Um, And so it makes it to the Supreme Court in 82, right? And famously, right, the decision written by Justice Brennan, right, doesn't go so far as to call it an educational right, right? But it says, he says something along, we can't see what the state would want to do in creating a, quote unquote, subclass of illiterates. And so it's seen as this sort of, moment in the early 80s where immigration rights activists sort of see this as the new frontier, right? They see it as this moment that's sort of an opportunity and they start to strategize, okay, if we can win on this, how can we expand it? Now, it turns out that this is almost going to be the pinnacle of their expansion for some some decades and and sort of it's going to be a much longer and bumpier road, I think, than they envisioned in
1: 1982. Yeah, and I strongly commend um the book, even just for this piece of history about Plylar v. Doe, because it is so central to the, the evolution of the debate over immigrant rights. And, um, you know, I, I think we have a hard time imagining, um, what it would mean to restrict or prohibit, um, undocumented kids in this country to go to school. And that was really the, the essence of the fight. So, it's a terrific um, read, and the and the the history, the uncovered history that you um, drew out, um, I think, really just adds to the the especially that the the dynamics between the um, the two administrations, because the case straddled the Carter and, and Reagan administrations, and the debates within both, and and uh, as you described how how that was a pretty tumultuous um, issue for, for both of those administrations.
0: Right. And Drew Days, right at that point as the head of the Civil Rights Division is really pushing the Carter administration to move forward and sort of make this the next front. But I think he actually meets and sort of what is sort of we'll see, right, a more conservative side of the Democratic Party, like that early roots of a much more sort of um, much more limited idea of what the, the government should be doing within the Carter administration. And then on the Reagan administration, one of the things I always find fascinating about the case is right. Chief justice, John Roberts, right. At that point is working um, in the Reagan administration. And after the case, you know, the decision comes out, he says, this is a chance where we should have taken a bigger step, right. We should have been more aggressive um, and sort of his missed opportunity on the right right now. And something, so I think it's sort of interesting to see how these, these ideas are playing out now.
1: Absolutely. Um, so uh, uh, let's just keep keep moving through the book a little bit. A, a central component um, of the book really is this pivot during this era to a debate about immigrant access to public benefits, um, as opposed to simply debates about um, the levels of um, immigration and um, the border. Um, and, and this was an issue that former President Trump um, really leaned into. He pushed um, it to the forefront in, in part with the, the help of his um, immigration um, aide, uh, Stephen Miller. Um, but uh, it, it was most notable in um, the issuance of what they call, what's the so-called public charge rule. Um, and that rule attempted to make it more difficult for immigrants to become legal permanent residents or citizens if they used or were likely to use Uh, an array of public benefits like nutrition assistance. This is a rule that existed before Trump, but they really tried to turbocharge it and make it um, effectively almost a categorical bar for many families um, to to progress into permanent residence or citizenship. The Biden administration um, has effectively moved to abandon the rule, um, but you track the debate about the use of public benefits over a, a longer arc, not just the last. Uh, four years. And and you show that immigrants' access to these safety nets um, have really diminished over time. And you describe the implications, I think, in pretty striking terms. Um, you say that um, they transformed putative insiders into outsiders and transformed rights-bearing legal residents into immigrants without rights. Um, and that's a pretty powerful shift, um, paradigm shift. So can you talk to, to us a little bit more about that?
0: Yeah, sure. Um, so I think this is one of the sort of a, a key way when you think about how the legal frameworks that we do to, that we are contesting today sort of have these much longer stories, right? So I think most people li- watching or listening um, would be surprised to know that you know in, until between 1935 and 1972, right, immigrants, even unauthorized immigrants, had access to most federal social safety net programs, right? They had access to SSI to un. Um, to OAA or uh, ADC, which becomes named Aid to to Families with Dependent Children. And when new programs were created, such as Medicaid um, or uh, nutrition assistance, right, they were given access to it on the same sort of way as the other federal benefits had done. Um, And what we see is in the 1970s, we see the rise of an anti-immigrant movement that begins to target immigrants' access to these programs. And so in the 1970s, they begin by targeting unauthorized immigrants' access to these programs. And what happens in the 1990s is we shift see a shift where they start attacking uh, legal permanent residents' uh, access to these programs. Um, and so it sort of becomes this litmus test for basic, basic rights. And the way this happens is in California, right, I won't have to remind most of the audience here, right? Proposition 187 passes, right? Which is a huge effort to restrict unauthorized immigrants access to the social safety net. Um, It's going to be eventually invalidated by the federal courts, but it has this wide ranging impact on national politics. And so the Clinton White House and Newt Gingrich and those in the contract with America and sort of congressional Republicans look at what's happening in California and they respond. And so you see what happens is the pressure from California, right? It's always important to keep in mind. And I think, you know, I, I teach college students nowadays, and they don't often remember that California was a, could possibly have been a swing state, right? But in 1992, California was definitely a swing state. You know, Clinton had won it with 46% of the vote, not even, a, he didn't have a majority, Perot had gotten 20%, right? And so he's looking at the the White House is looking at the politics that are happening in California, and they're worried about the 96 re-election. And they start to take a much harder shift to the right on immigration. They do this both through right border admissions, which I think are important. You think about things like Operation Gatekeeper or some of those things. But they take a hard shift on this other side of immigration policy, right? And they, in welfare reform, you see the federal government bar states from using federal funding to all these programs like Medicaid assistance right and it's in this moment in sort of 1996 you see this sharp sort of definition of what citizenship means now versus legal permanent resident in terms of access to all of these programs
1: what do you I mean what do you what do you make of that I, I want to come back to it um, uh, just kind of this this you know question of that sharp definition but w- how, how, how do you situate that in kind of the broader context of what was happening? Um, because this didn't happen in a vacuum. Do you have like, kind of, what, what are your reflections on what was going on that, you know, in addition to the, just the kind of more narrow politics that is, I think, are, were maybe dispositive, but like, what was going on more kind of atmospherically in the country?
0: Right. So I think, you know, neither Bush nor Clinton run on immigration in 1992, right? It's not at the top of the agenda, right? There's the only flap in the sort of 92 election around immigration is over um, refugees from Haiti, right? There's like a small flap over that and Clinton reverses his position on it between the election and sort of um, the inauguration. Um, But I think a number of things are, are going on. It's becoming a groundswell in certain key states, right? And California is one of them right we have the um uh, foreign born gunman at the cia um we have the earlier bombing of the world trade center right we start we're going through a recession right and particularly in california right the huge number of jobs are being cut in Cal- california sees a sort of really devastating economic effects in early 1992 1993 Right. And then you see also within the Democratic Party and sort of nationwide, there's a huge negotiation going on about what the welfare state should look like. Right. And what entitlement spending should be. And what you see is this sort of vortex comes together of all these issues where something that wasn't necessarily connected. Right. Becomes connected. You know, the welfare reform, reducing um, authorized immigrants access to welfare ends up funding 40 percent of clinton's welfare reform plan right
1: amazing yeah
0: and so it's sort of this this inner sort of this vortex comes together to bring these two issues of immigration and a larger issue of welfare reform and sort of for some it's a means to the end and for so some it's a means to the end the other way right they sort of come together at this moment with this sort of you're also starting to see right that you've You talked about this, right? There's huge demographic shifts going on in the United States. And in particular, I sort of think about this when, you know, the 1986 legalization occurs. A lot of sociologists have studied this and this is not my data, but, um, you know, one of the things we see is a large movement away from the five traditional receiving states right? So most immigrants in the United States head to one of five states, right? We see after this legalization occurs, people use the freedom of movement to seek opportunity in other parts of the United States. So suddenly we start to see more demographic shifts in more states that aren't just the traditional states having these debates. And it sort of brings it more to the national attention.
1: Yeah, I I think that's right. I I think um, the jarring impact, um, well, jarring to some impact of having um, a, a wave of new comers, new faces, new street signs, um, in, you know, coming into neighborhoods. Um, certainly I think helped propel that sense of, um, wow, our, our future is not, um, you know, the one that we anticipated and um, starts to create anxiety and, but, but it's less so, but well, on the one hand it's, you um, the interesting thing is, is that a lot of this, this kind of modern restrictionist movement starts in California where, which is, you know, the, the, you know, one of the, the most central um, traditional States, but the spread um, really of it really kind of happens in these more new receiving communities. And, um, and, you know, I, I know that many of us who have been working on these issues for a long time, are very hopeful that, that the, um, California experiment um, of trying to go down that path um, ends up becoming the the American experiment where California, of course, is now among the most progressive of all the states with regard to um, the rights of immigrants and uh, trying to have a more expansive, inclusive set of policies. Um, But for those who um, didn't follow this closely, you would really have a hard time understanding what the state was like in the early uh, 90s. you, I'll come back to the '90s in a second. Um, uh, but or maybe we should just go there now because we're we're there. I mean, I, this is one of the most insightful things I, I found in your book. I, I mean, I uh knew all this, but I had not really situated um, the importance of the '90s uh, as a decade and really which immigration policy, I knew all of the immigration policy changes that were occurring, but I hadn't situated it as a decade in which the politics really fundamentally shifted. Um, I kind of was more narrowly focused on one big inflection point in at in 9-11 and to, 2001, which of course was a big um, turning point as well. But, but really the A lot of the politics had shifted already in the 90s, Uh, not only did kind of the nature of the arguments, some of the ones you just went through um, around uh, welfare benefits and the like, um, not only did the nature of those arguments change, but the locus of the battles had also shifted in this really significant way from the halls of Congress to, um, you know, the state houses across the country, the Prop 187 and um, beyond. I, I just, I'm, I'm interested in how you um, kind of see over the, um, you know, 96 kind of in your 1965 to present, um, how you see that shift um, to, toward challenging the federal government's exclusive authority um, over immigration policy during that period um, as really kind of changing the, you know, the arguments that we're having today. I mean, were they successful in those efforts? Um, And what are those, what are the implications of the effort, success or not today?
0: Right. So I think a lot of people think of, um, when they think about states and this role of states and sort of shifting immigration, they automatically think of Sheriff Joe Arpaio and they think of Arizona and SB 1070 as sort of this watershed moment of you like 2009, 2010, 2011. But the long story, longer story that I sort of point to is that states have really been sort of driving national policy for almost 20 years by then. Um, I think you see this both in California, right? So in the case of California, it's not that the state the state sort of forces through its policy, the federal government to shift federal policy, right? So they're forcing, 187 isn't sort of, na- it's not directly sort of, Adopted, but it forces this shift in the federal government's policy. I think what you also see, and I, I sort of highlight this in a story um, about a small town in Iowa, but what you start to see is I, I trace in my book how a murder in a small town in Iowa and sort of some shifting demographic, immigration demographics going on in Iowa in the early 90s. Um, creates an opportunity for people like Chuck Grassley and Tom Harkin and others really push for the first time for the power for state and local law enforcement to have the power to do immigration enforcement. It's the creation of a program called 287G, which has now gone through many iterations. It's gone from 287G to something called Secure Communities, right? And so it's sort of all one sort of long locus, but it's passed in 1996. And basically, 287G effectively ends a century of exclusive federal control over immigration enforcement. And it sort of ushers in what I would say is a new era of immigration federalism, right? So you have immigration federalism in the 90s in two ways, right? So not only are states like California shifting national policy, they're sort of shifting national policy, they are literally getting the power delegated back to the states, Right. And it's sort of a a larger moment, actually, across policy in general. Some political scientists call it, you know, the devolution revolution. Right. But you can very clearly see it in immigration at this moment. And so while we may, you know, and states are going to go in two different directions. Right. Some states, right, like Iowa, are going to push for more and more enforcement. California, right, is going to go the total opposite direction. Right. And so we see greater immigrant integration. And so what we see now is we have this whole era where states are really driving immigration policy in a new way, both on a liberal side and on a conservative side. And I think what's interesting to me is it's a tactic. This, the movement to the state level is a specific tactic taken by restrictionists in the early 90s because they've put all this hope and all this drive around the 1986 immigration reform, and then it doesn't pan out for them. And they're so frustrated with the federal government, that they turn to the states, and they're really successful at the states. And I have to give credit to immigration activists, right, who have learned from the restrictionist model, and now use it in the other way, right? You see, California has, you know, its own version, right, of state citizenship in a in a way that's really exciting.
1: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. and And it's, um, you know, and one of the reasons why I think the the federalism was allowed to flourish or has flourished in a way that, that it has, I mean, it's, it's not a blessed flourishing, except for through certain programs like 287G that, you know, that actually entered and created a more collaborative model for federal and state uh, engagement in immigration enforcement. But but the, the failure of the federal government and as Congress in particular to, to act and to take control has, like, I think been one of the things that has created and opened up a lot of this space. I wonder what you think about the notion that not only um, has it has the kind of vacuum or the seeding of the, the policymaking by, by Congress um, opened up that space, but has... The fact that states have taken it up has that kind of created a, a little bit of a safety valve, or just kind of taken a little bit of the pressure off, and you know contributed to the the federal government not acting. I mean, like there's this there's clearly this interplay. One you describe of you know early action by the states actually being taken up in 1996, but we haven't really had major legislative activity at the federal level since then. Um, and I wonder how much of that is because a lot of this is, a lot of these fights are kind of uh, playing out at the state level.
0: So I think what's interesting when you look at this at like over a long trend is, right, you see there's kind of this trend in immigration history, right, which is, you know, it's a really difficult issue. Let's form a bipartisan commission, right? It might be the Dillingham Commission in the 20s. It might be the Hesburgh Commission in the 70s or the Barbara Jordan Commission in the 90s, right? We we form a commission, we sort of think about it. We sort of struggle at the federal level. That doesn't mean immigration policy just stops when the federal government stops, right? And so at different points, I think where you're right, there is this vacuum that's created. And so in the 70s, right, it's, it's actually not the state legislature. It's largely happening through the courts, right? And a lot of what we think about about immigration policy is going on through the judicial branch, Um, In the '80s, right, we start to get back to federal legislation. The '90s, we're back to states again, right? So I think it's sort of a a false idea that just because the federal government has stopped immigration policy, is going to stop, and something comes to fill that vacuum. It just over time and at different points shifts to different drivers.
1: Yeah, I think that's really insightful, and clearly we are dealing with that again today. I mean, that the court is has become the the kind of the Supreme Court has become kind of the decider about um, some of these big uh, administrative policy changes that um, a variety, you know, a number of the the, the most recent administrations have tried to take um, in the wake of congressional inaction, and so they're playing, I think, probably a bigger role than they would like to be playing in terms of actually charting the parameters of immigration policy. Um, uh, so let, let's go back, um, or I guess it's a little bit forward, but, um, um, but it will also take us back as your book uh, does throughout. Um, but in the wake of the 2016 election, uh, you know, a lot of the, the kind of punditry was uh, really focused on, wow, there's this, you know, the, this really striking rise in anti-immigrant sentiment. You know, where did that come from? You know, what's that about? uh you know trump clearly tapped into um a a vein that had been um so obviously not that far submerged because it didn't take him much to tap into it but um and you know but there's all this focus on trump in that moment you know kind of uh triggering this this new wave of um restrictionist uh sentiment um that it clearly animated not only his campaign, but, you know, much of his administration. And so it's understandable that there's so much focus there. But you convincingly argue, I think, that uh, there was a new um, anti-immigrant movement um, that started well before um, uh, the, the mid-teens. Um, and, and indeed, you date it back to the 1970s. And we've, I think, touched on it, this a little bit, but um, it'd be great to, to, to kind of chart for, to hear you chart that out a little bit more, um, because I think you know many of us have learned that there have been these waves of anti-immigrant uh, sentiment and movements throughout history, from Ben Franklin with the Germans to the Know Nothings in the uh, you know the mid 1800s. Um, but so, so in some respect, you know, it feels like wow, it's just a continuum. But you really, I think, kind of demonstrate how the anti-immigrant movement that we've been dealing with since the 70s is, has adopted a different model. Um, and so can you talk to us a little bit of how it's different from those historical analogs?
0: Yeah, you're completely right. There's obviously a, a long-term history of xenophobia in the United States that sort of dates right from the colonial period when Massachusetts and New York were trying to restrict immigration, right? And there's a long-term sort of story to be held. Um, I think what's interesting about what emerges and that's what sort of new about the anti-immigrant movement of the 1970s is it's in this post-civil rights movement world, right? And they can't make the same overtly racist arguments that their forebears did. They can't sort of, they have to sort of code the language in a new way. And they basically are very successful, the anti-immigrant movement that emerges in the 70s at arguing not only were immigrants taking jobs away from native-born Americans, right, but they're also an undue burden on the state. And that's a particularly compelling argument at this moment because, right, I think there's, the United States is going through a huge economic shift, right? We're going towards, um, away from manufacturing to a low-wage service economy. And a lot of people are struggling, right? And many white and black, Lower and working class American, middle class and working class Americans, right, are struggling, very rightly struggling, and they view um, the Latino and undocumented population, which all too often are considered the same, right? They sort of view this as, um, as sort of, so they associate them with this larger economic shift that's going on, right? Um, And what they do is they start attacking the immigrant population sort of very successfully arguing this twofold argument, right? It's not only that they're taking the jobs, it's at the moment that you're looking for this social safety net, they're also taking that from you, right? And that's actually what is most pernicious that continues to sort of really dominate through the 90s most successfully, right? It's not that overt sort of racist language that you again, we'll see with Trump, right? Trump brings it back in, and you know, no, no coded language there. Um, but <laughs> he's a return to the '20s, right? But like, but from basically the '70s, '80s, and '90s, the, the language that Trump's sort of using sort of harkens back earlier. But Trump also uses this language, right? He he effectively right argues these questions of of taking benefits and you know coming to the United States for uh, for the social safety net.
1: Yeah, I think that's really important um, to understand. Like, without that history, I think it's um, uh, you might think that this has just been the, the the traditional locus of fights um, around immigration. But I mean, just as recently as the um, the ARP and and certainly the um, you know the, the the recovery packages um, last year um, related to COVID. I mean, the, you know, one of the most pitched battles is about whether or not uh, undocumented immigrants who are contributing and are, you know, and like some of the them are the most vulnerable frontline workers, as farmers um, who are continuing to, um, you know, pick crops and uh, delivery workers and and, and the like, um, that they're. Um, deemed ineligible for some of the supports that we're providing to the rest of the country. And that that is the flashpoint in some of um, the political debates. I mean, it is like one of the central debates now. And um, it didn't just, it wasn't always that way. That wasn't necessarily. And you can see this even
0: over the last two weeks, like Ted Cruz is not only on a machine gun boat on the border right he's also tweeting that every undocumented immigrant in the united states is going to receive a 1400 hundred dollar check right it's it's two it's this argument it's it's not one or the other right it's sort of two sides there's sort of both having an effect and it's it's still present today
1: yeah um so um hearkening back and we've kind of we've circled around this a little bit and 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 you have touched on it, but I, but I think it, it bears uh, more kind of a, a deeper discussion, harkening uh, back to what I did say at, at the outset um, in introducing you in the book. Um, this question about how our notion of citizenship has changed over the last fifty years, and and then the 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 kind of effect that that um, that those changes are, have really had on um, the rights of citizens, um, so that it's not just, you know, you you haven't kind of isolated immigrants and, um, you know, undermine their rights, but you've actually had this bleed into um, the rights of citizens. Um, You want to talk a little bit about that? Because I think that's also something that people don't realize that it's not, it can't just, we can't just think of it as all happening to them over there, that it's actually happening, that some of these changes and these paradigm shifts are happening to all of us.
0: Right and I think what you see and you see this big change in the 90s right and I think it's particularly there that you see it that there's becomes this sharp dividing line between citizens and non-citizens right but what you see in the 90s is when you undo the like the welfare sort of and social safety net for non-citizens it also undoes it for citizens right some of these attacks that are sort of we're all in it together right and so when you start to make these attacks on one part of the system right they bleed into the other part its welfare reform removes a huge number of citizens from the social safety net as well right and that is only undone with the removal of immigrants from the social safety net right they're sort of tied together and i think what you see over time is that it creates a second class right a second class of citizen of a second class of people living in the united states it's people who are living here who are paying into the system who are part of our communities who are essential workers right, but just are entirely banned from certain parts of participation in state and society. Um, And it's a dramatically different story, right, just as a reminder, than 1971, right? I mean, the fact that we're having these debates, something that like people in the late 1960s, early 1970s wouldn't even have thought, right? History reminds us that things are possible, it's possible to do it another way, right? And that citizenship didn't have to be as limited as it is right now
1: yeah and i think um you know when you look at history just around you know i think we see the the ever progressing expansion of the notion of citizenship that's 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 something i think we believe because you know seeing it expanded to um you know different groups across history creates this perception that we are kind of on this inevitable um you know track toward a more expansive more um vibrant uh uh view of citizenship but in fact there are you know we are living through and um this this period that you describe really is uh an important counter example of uh, how you know maybe less seen and less visible or obvious um we're actually. Um, grabbing the view of um, citizenship and and um, and there's significant costs that are associated with that um, I I think we've got um, some questions that have, have started to, to flow in and, and I'm looking at the time and uh, you no know, we've only got about uh, 15 or 20 minutes so I, I want to maybe start to pick up a few of these um, you in part because you referenced one of um, them just now with the Ted Cruz. Um, the, the, the question from the, the audience is, what do you think about the PR stunts of politicians visiting the border um, at times of crisis? Um, it always seems to be the opposing party visiting and blaming the current president for failures and scoring political points over, um, you know, what might be a genuine crisis. Um, so, so, so not necessarily, let, let's maybe frame this question about, um, like, why the border always becomes the, you know, like, it's it's the metaphor for all of this, but, I mean, the title of your book is, um, you know, The Walls Within, um, and so you, you highlight, I think, so powerfully how um, it isn't all just at this, you know, 2,000-mile border along, um, uh, it, it, you know, or... Uh, Uh, frontier with Mexico, but it's, it's all of these other borders. And, and yet, as the the audience uh, member, uh, I think, appropriately points out, it it does become the locus of all of the debate. And what do you think about that in terms of like how that allows for the distraction from, I think, many of the arguments that, that you make in your book?
0: Sure, I think uh, two two things on that. Um, so the first is, you know, I, some reporter wrote a few weeks ago, and I and I thought it was sort of apt. This quote, he said something, and I'm going to b- butcher it a little bit, but he says basically, you know, reporting on immigration only looking at the southern border is like reporting on the pandemic only looking at the emergency rooms, right? Um, and that there's a a story to be told in the emergency room, but there's a much larger story, right? To be told about what's going on about immigration, as I mentioned in the beginning, right? There are 24 million people living in the United States, right? They're, they're not at the border; they're living in our community. They're in our they're essential parts of our communities. These are members of our, you know, your kids' schools. These are people who are in you know essential workers in your lives. These are you know the doctors taking care of your mother, right? These are people um, in our communities, and so I think it's sort of disingenuous to only focus on the border. Um, I think politicians do it because immigrants have always been used as political bargaining chips. It's an easy, like, fan-flaming PR hit to make to take a, you know, a boat along the southwest border with machine guns, right? Because as if they're worried about what, I'm not exactly sure, right? Like, um, But it's an easy easy pr hit to make but it's a distraction from where the actual work has to be done right there's a lot of really tough conversations to be had about what a comprehensive immigration reform bill is going to look like right what sort of tps right like what what a pathway to citizenship for tps is going to be about what are we going to do about dreamers but those are much more difficult and politically fraught conversations for some of these political politicians to have and so they prefer to keep it at a much more sort of fan-flaming, easy-removed hit of talking about the southwest border.
1: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I um, share that perspective that it is um, much more a, a distraction, and 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 it's one that I think is also fueled by the fact that we refuse to invest in the border and in the infrastructure and in the systems that um, can make it not appear like a crisis when when people are coming because people are going to continue to come we have a you know we have a um a near abroad um that is mexico and uh the northern triangle of central america that has deep relationships deep connectivity to the united states families um, jobs etc and we just have refused we we've we've focused on that border and we've refused to um, uh, actually, do the hard work of uh, creating more uh, solutions to what that what what a functional um, immigration system with broader legal pathways, et cetera, could and should look like. And so, um, I think what we end up getting reduced to is these these really fake, artificial fights about the border. Not to say that um, as i think you point out and as the the audience member did um that there there are genuine issues that need to be resolved there but again it's in part because we don't want to actually do the work of solving them we just kind of keep coming back to them um that, that also reminds me of another um uh i think really important insight from your your book which is And I think people know this, but but maybe if you're not you haven't paid a lot of attention in the past, um, you are less familiar with this. But, um, you know, right now, the Democratic Party has really almost, you know, exclusively um, aligned or not uh, almost uniformly aligned with a progressive view of immigration and immigrant rights. Um, I mean, we've had kind of almost unanimous support for all of the, you know, the kind of most progressive bills that have gone through um, Congress um, since, you know, over the last 10 years, really. Um, It's kind of striking, but it's striking to those of us who have been kind of working in this space for a long time, because it wasn't always that way. And I think you, you know, your kind of point about Um, you know, what happened in the 80s to then what happened in the night. Well, you you also talk, you know, you talk about the conflicts that the Carter administration was having and then the Reagan administration was having. But then, you know, Reagan signs into law the biggest um, uh, legalization uh, and the most substantial change to our immigration laws, um, you know, in 1986, 35 years ago. Um, But then you've got 1996 that, you know, uh, President Clinton signs into law. Like, how do you make sense of, um that trajectory where there wasn't um that kind of that same clarity about uh partisan affiliation and support for or against immigrants.
0: So I think that's one of the most interesting things about immigration policy, right? Is it really goes away from this idea that we have party homogeneity in the 70s or 80s or 90s, right? The people who are pushing the most on employer sanctions, right, which is the idea that you should penalize employers um, for hiring unauthorized workers, right? So one of the biggest people pushing that is the Urban League and the AFL-CIO and the UFW and a lot of the labor unions on the left, right? Um, and so there's a huge rift within the Democratic Party. Now, that will shift over time, right? Unions will slowly move. I think the latest is, um, and you would know this more than me, but AFL, I think, finally shifts in about 1999, um, right, but UFW is 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 shifting in the late 70s. Right, but these this fracturing is there on the left and it's there on the right. Right, Reagan has a huge debate in within his party about employer sanctions, because he actually you know there's a huge wing that doesn't want regulation. It's all about deregulation. They want continued access to uh, cheap labor, right? And so they really don't want immigration restriction. And so I think what you see on both the Republican and the Democratic side is sort of this sort of real fracturing and constant renegotiation within each party that's sort of very complicated. And it's part of why making a deal is so hard, right? Cause they're sort of not in these like traditional allegiances that you would, you would work on.
1: Yeah, I think that's, uh, that rings, um, very true. And, and I think it's, it's another one of the, the like less well understood, um, you know, dynamics of the period. And, you, you know, we saw, I think, a lot of that energy. We saw a lot of it um, from African-Americans around the, um, the, you know, the Clinton support for the, um, the crime legislation in, in, in the 90s. But, um, but the same thing is true in the immigrant rights community. Is like the, some of those shifts were, you know, we're still feeling the, um, actively feeling the effects of those shifts today. Um, let me uh, ask a question, especially given you, you've kind of seen the historical uh, arc of different administrations, and and I know it's very early, and and I um, I've got a lot of insight on this as well, but I but I really welcome uh, this question from uh, the audience about um, what President Biden is doing today on immigration that's different from what President Obama did, and. And if you notice any kind of big differences so far, because that's a short, we're talking about a kind of a short, you know, uh, you know, what's happened just in in, in the space of half a decade.
0: Um, Well, I'd love your thoughts after uh, on this, too, because I think you probably have a a lot more insight on this than I do. But um, so President Obama sort of maintained the status quo on immigration enforcement in the early years of his administration, um, in large part, right, trying to build up goodwill, towards on enforcement with the idea that of brokering some sort of more comprehensive reform effort in 2013-2014. That strategy did not work, right? It, it failed. Um, and so what I think you've seen is the Biden administration so far is taking a more aggressive stance on immigration policy in the first 100 days, right? Um, they are undoing some things, right? The, um, some of the internal enforcement uh, question, the uh, moratorium is being challenged by the Right, but they're certainly taking some steps, like moving the travel ban. Um, We're seeing a slightly different approach, right? They've signaled in terms of support for the Northern Triangle countries, right? They're supporting, sort of, signaling a shift that's more towards going towards NGOs to do civil um, civil society building up than than governments. Um, But I think, sort of, you see him definitely taking a more uh, sort of more aggressive approach in the first 100 days. I think what will be interesting to see is right, President Obama was forced to turn to executive action, right? Um uh will Biden end up in that same boat, right? Will will he be successful legislatively or will he sort of resort again to executive action? But I welcome your thoughts. You are much more in the day to day on this one.
1: Uh no I, I think that's I think you're right. And those are the big questions and the big things um we're gonna have to see I, I think clearly um the emphasis that the Biden administration put on in in part again this was Had to happen given the last four years um, that there that there was such an early active emphasis on trying to fix some of the um, right some of the wrongs and um, repair some of the wreckage, which won't happen overnight. Um, But I think quickly they've you know were overcome by the new dynamics and challenges at the border, making it even more difficult for them to to kind of take those steps. But but the lean in on You know introducing effectively introducing a bill handing a bill, transmitting a bill to congress to to be introduced um that that is you know among the most progressive um bills on immigration and thoughtful and solutions based i mean it's not it's not an open borders bill um as it's been characterized but it's it's very much a um like we've been we've been at this for a long time the the system is fundamentally broken it's been neglected for decades and um, you know, here are some important steps that we can and need to take right now. Um, I think he's going to be stymied. Well, I think it's clear he's going to be stymied on that um, legislation um, for the foreseeable future with the 60 vote threshold in the Senate absent the filibuster um, change. But I, but I think that the, what's um, more interesting than or maybe it's, it's, a, it's kind of the, what, what comes out of that observation about how much they've leaned in early is that i think that there is a realization that um the old rules of kind of trying to like you're never going to out enforce um the other side um the other side is going to constantly kind of keep pushing the the goal posts on on this um you know the 2013 bill another audience member asked you know what happened to that well No, in in 2013, there was a supermajority of senators that voted for that legislation—68 senators, um, and and including 13 um, Republicans and all 55 Um, Democrats—and yet um, the House refused to even take it up. No, even though we knew for a fact that we would have had the votes to pass it, but the House, because of the politics around this, refused to take it up, and it certainly wasn't about the the lack of enforcement, um, because, uh, there was a $40 billion, um, you know, uh, amendment at the end of the Senate process, the Corker amendment that was just focused on building out infrastructure and supports and, um, at the border. Um, and, you know, that was a hard pill for a lot of people on the left to swallow, but it was the, the, the quote unquote compromise to get to, um, the bipartisan solution. But, uh, but it was, we, we never reached it. Um, I will be asked, um, uh one uh, g- good question that just um, came in. Um, and, and I don't know if you've got thoughts on this. And if, if you don't, we can uh, move to another one. But I, but I do think it's a, an interesting um, question, one that I've grappled with a little bit too, um, is how much you think immigration and immigration policy um, played into Arizona um, kind of going fully blue in 2020. Um, you know, that was a kind of a, a long, there was a long evolution getting at, you know, in, in that, that shift. Um, I mean, you had in 2010, you had SB 1070, um, you know, the, one of the most anti-immigrant pieces of, you know, state legislation the country has seen. Um, and And do you think, and if you think it did play a significant role, how do you see, any any of the differences between Arizona and Texas um, on that question?
0: So I think, um, I think it played some role. I think it remains to be seen how big that role is, but we saw, you know, for example, Prop 187, right. In California, hugely anti-immigrant measure leads to a huge amount of naturalization, right. And California has now significantly shifted. So this can happen, right. It's not unseen before. Um, I think it might, uh, you know, signal a larger shift. I think, um, you know, I'm here in Texas. Um, I think, you know, the politics of Texas are complicated, right? I think it's hard to view when people look at Texas and say, you know, the Latino vote, right? It's not monolithic in Texas. It's it's a very complicated, fractured um, vote. So I think it's hard to sort of say that just because it goes one way on immigration, right? It's, the Latino vote is not uniform in in Texas on immigration issues. And I think sort of it's a sort of a more complicated regional, there's some regional dynamics um, that are at play. And I, I mean, I, I think, you know, there's a good chance over a longer term, right, that Texas will sort of shift, probably more liberal. Um, but I think it's a complicated, but I'd love your thoughts on this as well.
1: I know, I think you're right. And I think that the SP 1070, um, to Prop 197 parallels are very interesting, um, so I think it's a it's a great question that the audience member drew out. But I also think um, Texas, like you say, um, does have a a very um, different Latino population in the sense of the kind of long standing, um, multi generational in many places. Some of that in Arizona, but um, but a little bit less so. Um, in fact, it. Texas in that respect is a little bit more like New Mexico that has the, I think the longest standing um, uh, Hispanic populations. Um, but, but I, but I, I do think that there is there, there are, they you know, reached the point of diminishing returns in terms of demonizing um, other, you know, demographics that are, uh, as we, we talked about before that are shifting in, just profound ways. I mean, I think this year we hit um, the fact that a majority of um, people 18 and under um, are non-white and that portends Mm -hmm. out, you know, track that out and we, the the projections are that by 2040 or 2042 or 2038, depending on um, how things unfold, that, you know, we, that the whole country will be um, less than Fifty uh, percent um, white, uh, non-Latino, and and I think that you just can't continue to have the types of animus in a in a state like Texas, uh, is diverse and and big, and um, it, you know a, as we've seen in recent years, as we saw in the beginning of your book with the um, the the case that emerged, the the Plyler v. case that emerged from Texas. Um, so I, I I don't know how quickly it will turn, but um, but if the Republican uh, um, party doesn't, in the state, does not shift um, to accommodate that that shifting demographic, I think it will be sooner rather than later. Um, but so add got, to that we
0: obviously have gerrymandering yeah. issues in Texas yes. as well,
1: right? And so, how quickly that the the actual rep, reflection of the shift in popular vote can. Uh, manifest in the the, the the state legislature and in the represent the federal representatives is, um, that's a separate question you're absolutely right um, so we've only got um, five minutes left uh, so I think I'll ask one more um, question uh, maybe ask two quick ones um, first because I'm, I'm really curious about your views on, on this uh, another one from the chat which is um what's your if you have one, what's your kind of view of the current Mexican administration and you know what how they are dealing with um the migration issue and um the 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 audience member observes that they don't think much is being done by them to to curb uh immigration from central america um welcome your your thoughts on that, and then I have another quick one to close this out
0: sure, um you know I think the Mexican government has to be part of any larger, you know, regional conversation. Um, And I think we're seeing a number of levers starting to be perhaps pushed. You know, we've seen some of it around this conversation about vaccination. Um, You know, I think the Mexican government certainly has a role to play. I think no regional solution can happen without the Mexican government sort of being on the table. It'll be interesting to see what role they play. I mean, I, I, I don't have a lot on... Sort of where I think that's going to go, um, but they, they certainly will have to be at the part of the table. Obviously, the southern the question of what happens at the southern border of Mexico is essential to sort of thinking Through that, that's
1: right. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, I think you know. I think Amlo is the Mexican president is um, referred to. I think he um, surprised a lot of people with how quickly he um, gave into Trump. But I think that he. I think this is not a big issue for him. Um, but it needs to. Be, but it's been imposed on him from um, from the prior administration, and it will need to be as well from this administration that they need to be a, an important player and have a, have an important role here. Okay, so um, we've kind of reached that time. So I'm going to ask the, the last question, and um, this isn't to um, have you kind of toot your own horn, on um, which you very well should. Um, but uh, but, but I am curious, I, um, and I think the audience will want to know, wh- why at this moment in time is this book important?
0: Um, so I think it's really important because, as I said earlier, right, the Biden administration is sort of at a crossroads and it has an opportunity here. And I think you can think of, as you've mentioned, right, a lot of what they're initially doing is this sort of four years, like unwinding of the last four years, right? And sort of a piecemeal sort of reduction of the Trump border and admissions policies or a lot of their sort of things. But the question that I sort of think this book raises is how much, and sort of lays out, is how much do we want to return to a much fuller vision of citizenship and what it means to be in the United States? And what can we do on immigration policy that's different than we're doing now? And we had a way Right. We had a way that was a much more inclusive vision of what citizenship meant and what the rights of immigrants were in the United States. And we've seen the book sort of traces sort of the devolution and it gives us a pathway back. Right. And it shows us sort of that there's a we can just move beyond. Right. Just undoing what Trump does to sort of what the broader vision of what we can be right? And sort of that's why I think it's important at this moment, because it sort of gives us a guide to sort of how we can have a more inclusive notion of citizenship for everyone in the United States, immigrants and, you know, foreign born and native born.
1: Amen to that. that's um, a great, great place to close, I think. Um, so we have uh, reached time and I um, uh, just want to give my sincere thanks to you, Sarah, for uh, taking the time and for just a, a really insightful conversation. It was a real pleasure for me.
0: Well, thank you. It was all the pleasure is all mine. It was a great um, thank you so much for taking the time out of your very busy schedule to do this.
1: Oh, it was my pleasure. So the book, Everyone Is the Walls Within the Politics of Immigration and Modern America. Um, and want to thank the audience as well for watching and participating live and all the great questions. Um, if you'd like to watch more programs or support uh, the Commonwealth Club's efforts in making virtual programming, uh, please visit commonwealthclub.org slash online. Uh, I'm Marshall Fitz. Uh, thank you very much for joining. Stay safe and be well. You've been listening to the Commonwealth
0: Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play and Stitcher.